<laughs> but before going into the, the other elements of temperance, other than chastity, that is, let me refresh your minds on what I consider to be the fundamental principle that was enunciated last week. And that is the distinction between chastity as temperance and chastity merely as continence. It may not be an easy distinction to understand in the positive side. Chastity as continence merely means the absence of unchastity. But chastity as temperance means that particular bent and direction of mind and will which has God in focus and all things else in sort of a proportionate relationship with God. The chaste person is the person who not only is not unchaste, but who also in mind and will has God in the center of his life and all things else in some way flowing from God and flowing back to him. Chastity then is a state of mind and of will. Chastity is temperance. It also, of course, involves the absence of unchastity. But it involves that on principle, so to speak. The one who really has trouble with unchastity, therefore, is not wise if he or she merely concentrates upon the effort to avoid unchastity. Although indeed, running from temptation is a very legitimate way to protect oneself, and Thomas recommends it as one of the, the best bits of wisdom possible. My father used to recommend it also, not only where chastity was concerned, but where, where a good fight was concerned too. He always said a good run is better than a bad stand. You see, I, I, I agree with that. The West Clare Dragoons, incidentally, were a small group of revolutionaries who never fought a battle during the Civil War in Ireland or during the War of Independence. And they had as their philosophy and motto, the man who fights and runs away will live to fight another day. <laughs> so, <laughs> there is something definitely to be said for avoidance, definitely. And we will see some of that in tonight's uh, substance. But the prime reason, the prime methodology, the prime strategy and tactic for the person who has difficulty with chastity is to get the mind straight and get the will straight. For you see, if we really don't understand the sublimity to which we are called in this matter, we are not going to withstand the incomparable pleasures that are attractive to us in these matters. The will always must be shown a good. It cannot, it cannot act if it is shown only an evil and we are recommended to say no. 
That is the basic fallacy of the contemporary advice by the head of the education department and the president of the United States and several other people. Say no. It is impossible to say no. What we must give our young is the thing to say yes to. If we simply have them saying no, they will never grow, they will never manage in this wretched society to be pure or drug-free or anything else. It is the positive content of the beauty of order, the positive content of the beauty of the body, the beauty of proper and lovely relationships between people and between people and God. It is that that must be shown to them. It is, I think, highly stupid simply to tell them, say no. Especially when everybody else is saying yes to something. Something they shouldn't be saying yes to. We'll come to that too later in this lecture. There are a few things we all say yes to that we should be saying no to. Mm, yes. How about that ice cream, for instance? You know very well that it puts on the pounds. It gives you those handles, doesn't it? Ah. Well, do you say no? Huh. Well, don't expect your kids to say no either. If there is something shown them to which they can say yes, then they will learn to be moral. They must, in other words, be taught chastity as temperance. It is not sufficient to urge them to be continent where chastity is concerned. You see the distinction now? It's a very important one. Thomas always says, and I, I, I couldn't agree with the man more, and I'm sure he must be gratified by my agreement, of course, yes. But I, I, one, of, one of my professors in seminary used to say always, your textbook agrees with me in this matter, you know. At least I have the humility to say I agree with Thomas. But as I say, he must be terribly pleased by that. But certainly, only the good and the presence of the good can move the will to accept it. You cannot just paint pictures of evil and expect the will to act. The will will find something attractive in every evil you paint, including murder and the greatest and most horrible of crimes. There are situations in which our will could find murder attractive. Give me a chance on a Monday morning sometime and you'll see. We have to have something to say yes to, otherwise the moral life is paralyzed. It is not therefore sufficient to be continent and puritanical about sex. One must understand the beauty of chastity. One must see the order and dignity of the human person. One must see ultimately the plan of God. And then the will will say, in the presence of the worst attacks upon chastity, the will will say yes to the greater good. All right. Now, for the one then who has problems with unchastity, once the will is changed, once the mind begins to see the beauty and the attractiveness of the good life here, you will have occurrences recurring of the old thing. We will go back occasionally to the flesh pots of Egypt, so to speak. But that is incontinence. 
that is not turning entirely to the merely sensuous and passionate to the exclusion of God. It is incontinence and we can handle that. It is intemperance in our people that we cannot handle. The person who is truly intemperate is incapable of understanding speech. The blindness that Thomas spoke of that I quoted to you last, evening, last Tuesday evening, that blindness is present in everyone who has the darkness of unchastity as intemperance in his life. And we must pray for that person, that he be converted and see the beauty and the attractiveness of the good. And he will then become noble also in this area. Now before leaving the subject entirely, there is another matter that we should speak of, and that is the whole area of virginity. For chastity and virginity are singularly different, obviously. The married person who is faithful and loving and just is chaste. The single person who abstains entirely from sexual matters is chaste. What is virginity? It is more than chastity. Virginity is not so much a state of life, Thomas says. Virginity is a choice. It's a vital existential choice by which certain people are drawn to leave behind, not as evil, but as good, the whole beauty of married life, and choose instead to give themselves entirely to God in the service of God in some particular way, be it as a monk in the monastery, as a priest in the secular priesthood, as a sister in the convent, or even as a layperson in the world who has indeed vowed this. And there are some lay people in the world who have vowed this. The beauty of, of virginity, however, is not again in its negation of sexual experience. The beauty of chastity or of uh, virginity consists precisely in the fact that it is the choice of God exclusively above everything else, every other good. This is the only way in which virginity is superior to chaste marriage. That God is made exclusively the choice of the will and the person making that choice knows that he or she is transcending a great and marvelous and noble good. There is no recognition of evil. In fact, when young men out of the college come to me and young women to discuss vocation, that is the first thing I always explore, their attitudes toward marriage. If they have any shaky attitudes toward marriage, I say, no, I don't want to touch you with a 40-foot pole. Anyone who considers marriage as something to be avoided isn't fit for virginity. In fact, the mass of the dedication of virgins in the convent, the great ritual mass, has the, the love of marriage and the extolling of marriage as an essential part of it. Virginity itself is expressed in the context of marriage. And even virginity is spoken of in terms of espousal. The sister is espoused to Christ. The priest is espoused to the church. Espousal is part even of virginity itself. 
In fact, I think it is Augustine who, who when he discusses the business in his work on virginity, when he discusses the business of the silliness of thinking that the virgin is essentially more um, exalted than the married person. And of course, now some of you who know uh, Augustine's history will know that he lost his virginity fairly early. Naughty fellow. But anyhow, he did later choose to become virginal again. And in his subtle and, and, and rather contrapuntal way, he, he's, he's talking about this business about his own virginity now, his newfound virginity. And he says, in no way does this make me greater than Abraham. And I agree. I mean, Abraham was married, but holy Moses, he was, he was a marvelous fellow, you see, and probably greater than probably Augustine and, I don't know, Thomas, hardly greater than Thomas. No, no, not greater than Thomas. No. No. Again, let's understand that, that, that virginity is not a rejection of good. Virginity is the going beyond the action by which God is chosen exclusively. Dominus pars hereditatis mei. God is my portion and my lot. God is sufficient for me. Thomas says that this is good in a community, just as in an army, different men do different things. Some are standard bearers, of course in those days they had standard bearers. Some use the sword, others the spear. Similarly, he said, in the Christian community, the wholeness of the beauty of the human thing is expressed when some are married, some are merely single, and some are dedicated to the state of virginity. It is a difficult thing for us to understand these days, I know, since we, we now put movies out in Hollywood which have as their thesis that in order to be happy, a man has to have sex at least once a day. Well, if, if you live in a community like that, of course, virginity is an impossibility. But it isn't, folks. It isn't. In fact, there are ways in which it is much easier than the married state. When I speak to my brothers who are married and have children, and I see how their hearts are torn to pieces by concern about their children, it seems to me that I have chosen the easier way. And you know, it's a little like smoking, I think. It's, it's easier to give it up altogether than to give it up now and then. <laughs> yes. um, but anyhow, the, the, fact, the fact is that God does motivate, God does reach out and select certain people to express the beauty and fullness of the human thing through virginity. It is, according to Thomas, an example of excellence, but excellentia in Latin is not excellence as we know it. It is, it is a pure form of chastity that I think is required in every age, and perhaps more in our age than in any other, since people are so terribly enslaved in our age by the whole business of sex. It's nice, but it isn't all that it's made out to be, as any married couple, of course, will agree. All right, now there are several other things that we must cover in, this deal, in our dealing with temperance. See, really all we have done is to cover that particular part of temperance that is called chastity. That means the way in which reason is permitted to guide 
the activities of the body in the area of the sexual. Now we go to another area. And this applies to every man, Jack, and Jill of you. It is on fasting. Do you remember fasting? Because now people go on diets, you see. That's a different matter altogether. That's a clear example, it seems to me, of the truth of the words of Jesus. The children of this age are wiser in their generation than are the children of light. We go on diets that are horrible in order to lose some unsightly pounds around the midriff. And then we pig out on a variety of things. We, we seemingly apportion ourselves different delectables and measure them carefully, of course, not for any transcendental reason, but purely from the point of view of calories. Calories. Oh, calories are the new moral law. Do you not know it? <coughs> of course. Thomas says that fasting is part of the law of nature. How does that grab you? When the church no longer demanded that we fast for 40 days, how many of us really continue to fast? When the church only recommended that we do particular forms of abstinence and fasting on Fridays, how many continue to do it as soon as the church withdrew the serious obligation? Was it merely then a matter of church law? Not so. Christ would not have fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before beginning his public ministry if fasting had not some particular native strength to it, if it did not do something in the structure of the human being. And indeed, the whole recommendation of Jesus, time and time again, that we should fast, we should deny ourselves. Deny ourselves what? Well, it's easy for me to deny myself a Rolls Royce, because I couldn't afford one. See? And I, I have always, a friend of mine who is a good priest friend, always used to say to me when we discussed, what are you going to give up for Lent? He'd always say, I'm going to give up sex. No. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that we deny ourselves already, you see, which we have no choice about. You see. What is Christ talking about when he urges all of his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him? Well, maybe it has something to do with fasting. Think about it. When you go to the supermarket, now, let's face it, ladies, do you actually shop to please your husband's palate on your own? Fess up now, be honest. I mean, don't, don't make any public confessions. <laughs> and gentlemen, you, you who look so put upon now as a result of this question, when you have the opportunity to shop, are you really worried about what your wife likes or your kids like? Do you not see those delectably attractively presented things there that are full of calories, but nevertheless, you've had such a rotten week, you see. You deserve to, to splurge a bit, don't you? Yeah. I, I will not say what parish I was in, but it was a parish in this diocese, 
and the dear housekeeper knew that I liked Cadbury's. I like Cadbury's chocolate. Hmm. Yes. But I, I normally, uh, I, and I'm, I'm not boasting that I'm terribly disciplined in these matters, but two little squares of Cadbury's of an evening, you see, it's perfectly all right. Sort of, hmm, it gives you that little taste and that lip, you see. All right. Well, now, notice I did not mention which parish this is, and nobody must even guess. Certain mornings, I never really found a pattern in them. Certain mornings, I would go down and open up the refrigerator to take out some, some orange juice or whatever, and I would see the poor Cadbury bar, as though it had been attacked by a bear. Now, I know I hadn't done it. I don't walk in my sleep. But I know that the good pastor, who uh, uh, had a very great love for chocolate, somehow got a hunger during the night and came down and gorged himself. Gorged himself with the stuff. Don't we all do it? Sure we do. Is it not wise, though, not to. Why should we gorge ourselves? Why should we take the extra portion? We don't need it. In his Purgatorio, Dante has a very strange canto where he describes his visit to that particular area in purgatory where those who were devotees of the palate, or as St. Paul put it, whose belly was their God, where they were suffering the pangs of purgatory, trying to find again their nature. And Dante expresses it rather peculiarly. He says, slowly as they suffer, the humanity begins to appear on their faces as though the gorging of themselves destroyed their humanity. Not their hearts. We know how it destroys the heart. We know what it does to cholesterol. I'm not concerned about that. We can go out and run around the block and take care of that, and we should do that anyway. I'm talking about the discipline required by every one of us in order to keep the balance that is a delicate one in our lives, that control that is so frequently so tenuous that one bad pig out might throw it out of balance for months. I believe St. Thomas is correct when he says that fasting is a part of the natural law because those few among us who are not yet perfect, he says, no, he doesn't say that, he's not as unkind as I am, those among us and all of us are included here who are not yet perfect need that touch of discipline constantly in order to preserve the delicate balance that they have.
in their lives and the control they have over themselves. See temperance again. Magnificent strengthening of the self so that one <laughs> so that one is not conquered by a bar of Cadbury's. Now we laugh at men who go out with high-powered rifles in pursuit of rabbits. It is a rather stupid thing to do. Brave men, fierce enemy. The rabbit might turn upon them and destroy them. Yes, but think of the man who is defeated by a Cadbury bar. <laughs> think of him. And then hold the mirror up to nature. Temperance, the controlled, joyful person. Temperance demands control of what we eat, of the passion of hunger. And that is serious. Thomas says, of course, that we should not take this matter to excess, and it is characteristic of our age where practically everything we can f afford, we gorge upon, that some of the newest diseases are those diseases that make food offensive. And people practically die because they can't eat. It is bad to fast too much. The celibate Thomas says, a man should never fast so much that his sexual powers are interfered with. That's Thomas, the celibate. I think it's marvelous. Because fasting is not intended to interfere with one's ability to work or to play. Fasting is a fine honing of the person so that he can work and play the better, if for no other reason than that he doesn't suffer from indigestion or bellyache. So all right, suburbanites, put that in your pipes and smoke it. Let's go from fasting. It's a rather awkward subject because it applies to every one of us so dreadfully and directly. Let us go instead to something more passionate. Let's go to the place of anger in temperance. Yes. Thomas says, anger and the sensuous part of man have an essential part to play in the virtuous life. How about that? Gregory the Great says, the man who in, in, in defense of what is good is helped by anger, fights a better fight than the one who is dispassionate. 
Thomas says, to be dispassionate is perhaps to be guilty of a defect. Anger. What is it? It is an irascible passion. It is a power of the soul. It is intended to overcome the obstacles in our path to our perfection. It is that juice that stirs in us when we are in the presence of the enemy, even if the enemy be a bar of Cadbury's. It brings fire to the person. Now, of course, it also can be abused, and we abuse it all the time. We abuse it by making a, a club of it and battering each other with it. We lose our temper. Oh, yes, indeed we do. And what do we do when we lose our temper? Do we, do we <coughs> point it to ourselves? No, we're always attacking somebody else. That's part of our way of living. And when we are thwarted in any way, we're liable to lose our temper, absolutely become angry as all get out, and be an embarrassment to our friends, and maybe a threat if we weren't such weaklings, a threat to everybody about us. That is the abuse of anger, the abuse of temper. Remember the first lecture? We said that this still contains the original meaning of temperance, this phrase of ours, where we describe our anger by saying we lost our temper. Huh? And what happens to your kitchen knife when it loses its temper? You throw it out with the garbage. It can't hold an edge. Can't do anything. It's useless. So similarly, when a man loses his temper, not uses it, but loses it, he's good for nothing. He's, he's an appendage of the injustice of the world. He is an embarrassment and offense to decent human beings. But when he uses it as it's supposed to be used, and sometimes, indeed, this will be on others, but it will be largely on himself, in his pursuit, in his own life, of the things that are difficult to achieve. When passion then takes over, and anger comes to the support of the man in pursuit of a good end, then he has an ally, something good, something noble. <coughs> I have on occasions myself, God forgive me, used anger deliberately, deliberately, put on a scene, because there was no other way to show the obscenity of what I was trying to point out. Anger can be used in the defense of the truth. And Thomas says the same about anger as he does about the passion of the sexual experience. He says, even when the power of the mind to control entirely the action that is taking place is taken away 
by the presence of anger, providing anger was properly guided. There is nothing sinful in it. The passionate man, passionately in pursuit of the good, is the ideal of the Christian life. Not some wimpy kind of person who speaks softly and carries a toothpick. I mean, that's the problem of our age. Old Teddy carried a big stick, you know. We carry a toothpick. But this is a soft-spoken age, dear ones. And the whole television industry will tell you that. You can't lose your cool on television and win votes. You have to be cool. Yeah. But fine, it's all right to be cool. When coolness serves the good. But when anger in the presence of evil is suggested and when anger is needed to overcome our own fears and to sufficiently protect what is good anger is required far from being sinful then it is a part of temperance but here we are not speaking of the man who explodes uncontrollably such man is an adolescent we're speaking of the man who is totally in control, who knows exactly when he's going to let loose, and who then lets loose. That's temperance. That's the soldier, too. Surprising in our age, though, to hear Thomas say, that virtue and the good life demand the collaboration of the sensuous and of the passionate. We are inclined, you see, to think of the experience of goodness as a spiritual experience. Man is not spiritual. Man is composed of body and soul. And he is as much body as he is soul. And body is intended to serve God as his soul. Thomas says some extraordinary things in this area, which I think actually would shock some modern Puritans. And I'm going to, since they are not part of this subject, I'm not even going to mention them. But this is no dispassionate Christianity, dear ones. 
This is no cool sort of, uh, you know, let's, let's not get excited about religion philosophy. No. In fact, Thomas would agree with the Irish that there are only, really, only two things worth arguing about. One is religion and the other is politics. All right. Let's say that's enough about anger. But don't, don't confess to me ever that you were angry. If you have anything to confess in the matter, tell me you lost your temper, made a fool of yourself. But don't tell me you were angry. That only means you were going out there and doing a good <coughs> job somewhere. Or maybe not going out there at all, maybe inside yourself you finally decided to do a battle that you had been reneging on for months and years. No sin there. It's only when you become an uncontrolled adolescent. And again, I shouldn't use the word adolescent. It is a fine thing for adolescents. But for men and women of our age and yours, <coughs> it is indeed improper. Just improper, unacceptable. That's all. Oh dear, I have several other things to cover here, and I'm, I'm going to finish this, and even if the hour will not be uh, sufficient. What will we go from now, or to? We, we have dealt with the great business of fasting. We've dealt with anger, or passion. How about touch? <coughs> Temperance in touch. I have said many times that one of these days, one of these days, some scrubby little politician is going to come up to me and pat me on the back with familiarity as though we had been formally introduced. And I'm going to turn on him and say, take your dirty paws off me. Touch. Everything is available for touch. Thomas says, touch is the fundamental of all the senses. It must remain sensitive if man is to remain intelligent. The one who is most sensitive in touch, Thomas says, is the one who is most intelligent. Since all knowledge comes, through the senses, and touch, indeed, is the most vast and fundamental of the senses. Think of the organ of touch, for instance. Every, every square millimeter of the surface of the body, internally and externally, is the organ of touch. So many of the other senses depend upon touch. The whole sexual experience involves very much the whole business of touch. Look at Helen Keller, what she could do with touch. See how, how the child exploring anything, everything, will grab, feel, Look at yourself. Why 
in so many places where you go, do they have to have signs, please do not touch. The natural thing, I love to finish wood. Natural thing for me is to run the back of my hand on the surface of a piece of wood and see how well it was finished. Touch is part of the, in fact, a fundamental part of the experience of knowledge. And knowledge is the greatest thing we have. To be careful, then, in the area of touch, not to saturate and dull it, to keep it sensitive, to keep the body itself healthy so that touch remains sensitive. To realize that the touching of another person is a very significant and important communication. Some studies have been done on that. In the most indifferent places in the world, like the public library, six or seven attendants at the library were primed on this particular thing, and all they had to do was to simply accidentally touch the hand of one returning a book. Just that. Nothing else. And cameras were there. It was extraordinary how the expression of face of the person touched changed. And the almost intensity of the encounter was evident. Is Thomas foolish then to remind us of the significance of this and of the care we should have in the way we handle each other? But of course touch can become an instrument of domination. You know that and I know it. They speak of the healing touch, it is real, with some, but the touch that is much more universal is the destructive one, the one deliberately used to destroy, subjugate, use another person. Thomas says we must permit reason to govern the care with which we deal with this sense of touch. I'm not saying that we should become absolutely sort of secluded from each other, but I am saying that when you touch another human being, you are touching a human being, not a body. Not a body. Which is why Christ always says, and you always say, why do you strike me? There's no defense on your part to say, I struck only your body. You struck me. Touch. Temperance. Let's talk for a moment about humility. It is also part of temperance. Humility. What is it? It is the use of truth in the estimation of one's own worth. 
the use of truth as the guide in judging one's own worth. Especially in the eyes of God. Humility, like pride, has as its essential mode the relationship and the acknowledgement of the relationship between me and God. The one who is proud has deposed God and the self has taken God's place and God is a trinket at the wrist to be dealt with when convenient. The one who is humble recognizes that in God's presence and he is always in God's presence he is creature and God is creator. There is love between them, yes. And love is as though, as Thomas says, as though between equals. But it is God's business to declare the equality, not mine. Humility is my acknowledgement, my constant acknowledgement of the fact that I am God's creation. Thomas relates it rather directly to large-mindedness, magnanimity. Curious sort of relationship. Because humility for us always has an element of groveling about it. You know, we think of Mr. Macabre in, 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 in Dickens. He's always humble, humble. Oh, you're so humble. And some of us joke that we are proud of our humility, don't we? Always a sort of a groveling, though a putting down of the self. There is no such thing in humility. That frequently is a face for pride. We call it in Ireland a fishing expedition. When somebody says, oh really, I don't do that very well, you know. And everybody knows that I do. Well, what am I doing? I'm looking for compliments. Oh, of course you do that excellently. Oh, do I really? Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. This putting down has nothing to do with humility and has a lot to do with the fakiness of the games we play. Humility is between me and God, primarily. And it determines, indeed, that at times I will choose to reject certain things and certain types of people. Why? Because the one who is humble is conscious of God and therefore knows that we are called to greatness. Therefore we will not demean ourselves for anyone or for any reason. Magnanimity, the large-mindedness of the man who knows that not only is he God's creature, but God died for him. Such a one is not going to be cheap. And such a one is not going to play games looking for compliments. For who since Calvary needs a compliment for God's sake? Are we humble toward each other, Thomas asks. Well, yes and no, he says. And he has a remarkable answer for that. Do I have to be humble in your presence? In other words, in some way, do I have to submit to you? <clears throat> Thomas says there are two ways of looking at a person. What is godly in that person and what is merely human. 
Now he says, and it's a rather complicated relationship, it is proper for what is human in me to submit to what is godly in you. For to love God above all things and even above myself is natural. But it is not required either that I should submit what is godly in me to what is godly in you or to what is human in you, and I need not submit what is human in me to what is human in you. Now there's no groveling. You should have no power over me unless it were given you from above. Who said that? Christ said that to Pilate. And that is humility. So insofar as you have been given things from God that place you beyond me, I shall submit. But insofar as we are just humans, I bow to no man. Oh, you would bring me to your queen, low at her feet to kneel, crave mercy from her stony heart, and urge some mean appeal. I answer, no! My knees will bend, and prayer of mine arise to but one queen, the queen of heaven, high throned above the skies. There were the dying words of a crazy Irish rebel who helped the Spanish Armada and was brought to London and condemned to die and told that if he begged from Queen Elizabeth, he might win his life. That was his answer. And that wasn't proud, that was Christian humility. He, the prince, will not bend his knee to any foreign queen. Because there's a certain passion in it that the Irishman understands. <laughs> humility. The saints are humble in that casual presence before emperors and great men that they constantly practice. Thomas More running out from Vespers when Henry decides to visit him at Chelsea, whipping off his, his cassock and surplice, and he runs down and then, I mean, both shoes are in wrong feet as far as I can remember. He is totally unimpressed, although Henry is his liege lord, and he respects him up to that. But God, he expressed humility most perfectly, I suppose, when, in obedience to his liege lord, he said, His Majesty commanded me to be brief, and brief I'll be. I die, His Majesty's good servant, but God's first. That's more. That's humility the acknowledgement of the Lordship of God, the refusal of any other Lordship. I bow to no man, especially not for my own advantage. That's humility. That is part of temperance. How many more minutes do I have? Oh, 10 or 11. Ah. Why must I be limited by an hour's tape anyway?
Well, anyway, it's one of the things we have to bow to folks, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about another very important thing. This is terribly important. Thomas uses two words to describe what we're going to try to talk about now. One is studiousness, a studiositas, and the other is curiositas. They can't be translated as studiousness and curiosity. But they are the ways in which, or they govern the ways in which we approach the sense world about us and use it. I think it is C.S. Lewis who says that if you go into your garden in the springtime and simply glance at the flowers and then raise your mind to God, you can pray. But if you go into your garden and concentrate on the flowers, you will not pray. The flowers will capture you. I think it was the great Goethe who said we would know things better if we didn't try so hard to know them. There is a sort of pride that drives us in the field of acquiring knowledge. Now for Thomas, of course, acquiring knowledge of the world God had made was reading the first book that God had written. Therefore, Thomas extols proper scientific exploration and by his very life shows the importance of philosophy, which is the exploration by the mind of the nature and structure of being. We're not then talking about the fact of knowing things. This is a requirement. We're talking about something much more subtle. The demand for a too agitated knowledge of the facticity of things, as Martin Heidegger would say. In fact, Heidegger says of our constant flitting about in different places that we are actually looking for ways to give ourselves to the world. Martin Heidegger. Can you imagine old Martin saying that? Surprising what old Martin says every now and then. I think purely by accident, of course. But anyhow, Thomas, Thomas says, and, and even Aristotle before him, and the great Augustine, and a whole variety of people say this. <laughs> there is a disease of the mind which can blind the mind to the deeper meanings of things by encouraging it to become more and more accumulative of facts. In other words, how often must you ride a horse in order to know what it is to ride a horse? Maybe uh, 20 times. Certainly not 200,000 times. Now, I, I'm, I know people love to ride horses, and I'm not knocking that at all. How often do you have to invent the wheel? Maybe three or four times. Don't you think that'll be enough? How often do you have to have students cut 
live frogs open in order to find out what's in them. I don't think you have to do it very often. And frankly, I think cutting live things open by 15, 16, 17-year-old kids is more um, an encouragement of savagery than it is uh, a means toward greater knowledge. This preoccupation with, I must see, I must see, I must see, more and more and more and more, I must see. I must go to Medjugorje. I must see. Visions in my dear Ireland now, where there was an incredible amount of sanity in religion. People are seeing stupid concrete statues sort of dancing about. They are crazy out of their minds. But it is part of our age. I mean, if Thomas were alive now, he would really write a treatise on curiositas. He writes a fairly decent one back in the 13th century, because this is nothing new. The diseases from which man suffers, the diseases of the mind, certainly, are not new. That is why we today can watch a good performance of a, Soph a Sophocles play and understand it completely. The diseases and weaknesses and strengths of the mind are the same now as they were five centuries before Christ. And this preoccupation with mere facticity, this accumulation of facts and mistaking it for knowledge and contemplation is a disease of our time. And in fact, I think Thomas, who taught two long periods at the University of Paris, would now consider the modern university as merely a handler of facts. There is no real deep contemplation of things going on. Oh, I know Einstein and Einstein types still do reflect upon the implications of facts. But our students are so inundated under facts at our universities that all they can come out as would be some sort of hyperannuated parrot they have lists and lists of things they have learned, but ask them to sit down and discuss the matter with you, and they will be singularly unable to do it. This preoccupation, this attitude toward reality, is intemperate, Thomas would say, and is a block against the real knowledge of things which needs silence and contemplation not the frenetic exploration that we are constantly engaged in. And then the whole business of the curiosity of the eyes. He, long before television was invented, speaks and describes a condition of man that resembles terribly 20th century television. He says people who have lost and Achadia is the, is, the, is the word he uses, and there's no equivalent for it in our language, achadia. People who have lost the sense of their own beauty as God's creatures, who have lost, then, the sense of their nobility, 
will become preoccupied with a saturating of the senses. They will constantly look for new things. They will cast aside after a moment's consideration something that would demand the scholarly attention of a great scholar for hours because they are not interested in its deep meaning. They have exhausted it for their own purposes when they have simply touched it, used it, eaten it, or whatever, and then tossed it aside. And he said the eyes, the eyes, he's, he's, he has a perfect description of the tourist here, incidentally, especially the American tourist, who has paid X number of dollars and wants to see all of Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, and the... Norwegian countries all in three days, you see? <laughs> this, this super view of things, you see. He, you'd swear he was talking about television. You know that compulsion that people have to sit in front of those things and watch... And, and you, you notice some of the modern commercials? I, I watched... I watched what was I watching? Uh, last night I watched some of uh, Abe Lincoln, which wasn't bad, considering who wrote it. It wasn't bad. <laughs> but uh, I, I've seen some of the commercials put out by some of these great people. It's flash, flash, bang, bang, flash, bang, bang, bang. And, and the most, the, the strangest contortion, contortions of body uh, that I've ever seen in my life. Dear God in heaven, I didn't know that bodies could do things that bodies do in commercials. <laughs> but the, the idea is, folks, don't give them long to see it. Just flash it by, flash it off, flash it by again, flash it off. Quick, 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 quick. You know, the attention span is very, very, very short. <laughs> and we sit there. Now, look, I, I don't, I must tell you, that I, I don't watch television anymore because I will be very frank with you. When I was at Capitol Hill, I was teaching at the, at, uh, the Association of Seminaries at the time. A friend of mine one day on a, on a Sunday asked me, uh, did you watch the news last night? I said, no, I never watch the news, I listen to it. He said, you don't watch television? I said, no. I don't have a television. So he gave me one, little black and white fellow. And I put it on, on a bench over there, and I watched the news. And I'll tell you, I got much more news on WTOP news radio in a half an hour than I got from Dan Rather and all his pomposity, or was it the other fellow who always said, and that's the way it is. Um, Cronkite, Cronkite, yes. I, I thought it deplorable. I still do, incidentally. But you know what I noticed? First of all, I would watch the local news and then I watched the national news. That's an hour. And then in the evening after I lectured or doing one, I would turn on again the local news, the 11 o'clock news. Another half hour. Not so. At 11.30, what are you going to do now at 11.30? Are you going to take down volume five of the Summa and really start getting into it? Oh, no. No, you'll say, hey, look, it's been a long and hard day. And therefore, you'll watch either the opening of Johnny Carson, which is probably the greatest insult to intelligence yet invented, or if Perry Mason is being shown somewhere, which is not such a great insult to intelligence, you'll watch Perry for an hour. <laughs> and one night, I realized I, each day of my life now, am spending two hours, almost two hours, before this stupid thing. And I can't read. I can't concentrate on anything else. I'm sitting here like, like, like a bemused chicken, watching this nonsense. 
And I stood up from where I sat and walked over with priestly solemnity and I pushed down its rabbit ears and I pulled its cord out and I wound it around the set and I put it face back in the closet. And I, I, I recommend that you do it because I still know that there are few things that can so fascinate the eye and the totality of the person and induce a kind of, what should I call it, a kind of, of minus haben state, a state of lessened consciousness. <laughs> Few things can do it more effectively than that wretchedness that we call the TV. Now don't give me the same sort of argument that one of my friends at Catholic University used to give me for buying Playboy. He bought it for the philosophic articles it contained, he said. <laughs> now I know television has good programs.